a hypervigilant mind creates a hypervigilant immune system. My immune system is my defense system. So of course, if I'm on the lookout for being hurt emotionally, then I'm going to have the same reactivity inside my body. Another thing I love about Ayurveda is it says we're the microcosm of the macrocosm of the universe. I really took that to heart and I started thinking about that. Like, okay, my cells you know, have the same consciousness and intelligence that I do. So let's look at what my consciousness and intelligence is actually creating here. So if I'm looking for her, I'm going to find it. And then I'm going to have this defensive structure that happens inside my body that's wired that way, my immune system, right? So I started realizing these were connected. So really what I, you know, like when I studied this, oh, cortisol that's released when I perceive myself as being in danger is breaking down my gut wall. It's affecting my genetic expression, right? And so then when the gut wall is broken down, then these lovely little bugs that are living inside of me, because I had Lyme and I had Epstein-Barr, and everyone always says nowadays, like Epstein-Barr is the cause of everything, or Lyme is the cause of everything. Well, no, you know, you have to be a hospital environment for that to happen. And I realized I was creating apartment complexes for everything to come and live in with a big sign that said vacancy. (laughs) Hi there, Neurohacker community. Welcome to episode number 59 of our podcast. On our show today, we have Dr. Keisha Ewers. She has been in the medical field for over 30 years and developed the HURT model, which stands for Healing Unresolved Trauma, for understanding how past childhood trauma impacts adult health. She has an online program for patients to heal their own trauma and hosts deep immersion healing retreats. She joins us today to share how her own experience with an autoimmune disease led to her understanding of what it truly takes to heal. Stay tuned to learn more. I want to take a moment to thank all of our listeners who have supported Neurohacker in our current WeFunder campaign. Your support makes this podcast and our products possible. If you're interested in co-owning Neurohacker, then now is your chance to join the other 800 plus WeFunder investors who have invested more than 1.5 million in Neurohacker. This is a limited time opportunity and we're nearly capped. So go to wefundercom slash Neurohacker to become a co-owner. Without further ado, let's jump into the show. Here's Heather and Keisha. Welcome to the show. My name is Dr. Heather Sanderson, and I am so thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Keisha Ewers. Keisha, thank you so much for being on the show to talk to us today about a lot about trauma and how we heal from trauma and the way that influences our health, our sex lives, and all of the important things in life. So thank you for being here. Oh, I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. So Daniel Daniel Schmattenberger, who works here at Neurohacker Collective, he had emailed me the link to your TED Talk months and months ago. And um, I was blown away by some of the things that you were saying because as a clinician, you were speaking, you were, you were articulating the things that I had sort of seen in practice but had never put words to. And um, I just went... Yeah, so tell tell us a little bit about the work that you do. Um, it's so important because nobody else is talking about it. I think that's what I want to say here first. <laughs> well, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, right? That, that saying is there for a reason. And I was strictly in the Western medicine paradigm. I was a nurse at the age of 19 and continued working my way. You know, basically, I worked in the intensive care unit and hospice for the first 10 years of my career. And then I got sick. 
And I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and I wound up having to really confront this model of medicine I'd been trained in and worked in having no answers, zero answers for me, you know? And so from that space, I started really investigating the research and looking for a different way to manage autoimmunity and perhaps even reverse it other than the methotrexate I, prescription I was being handed and the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and the admonition from my rheumatologist that when you get worse, come back, not if you get worse. And so I just thought, you know what, there's got to be something. And I, I went into the research and I found yoga, which was interesting. That was sort of my little first step on my path. And I went to my first yoga class the very next day. And the yoga teacher actually mentioned this word Ayurveda. And from there, I went back and researched at home. And I found that this this 10,000-year-old framework of, of medicine that's the sister science of yoga actually had some answers for me, which is, A, we're not all the same. That was huge, very revolutionary for me. <laughs> We're not all the same. And and B, that actually autoimmune disease is undigested anger. Mm. Now, that was another really interesting, like if you think about that sentence, autoimmune disease is undigested anger. First of all, we have no conceptualization of digesting feelings and emotions in our culture, none. And And then to be told I'm an angry person, that's why I'm sick, right? And I remember kind of talking back to the computer screen like, I'm not an angry person, <laughs> you know, just realizing as I was thinking that through that, yes, I, I wasn't. And that was probably a big problem and that I didn't have any model of or, or any kind of pathway or structure that had ever been presented to me about how to digest anger. So I started learning to meditate and and I went backwards one day because this word autoimmune kept coming up in front of me and I was looking at it and I was thinking, gosh, that means I'm killing myself, auto. This is actually me committing suicide. And, and I thought there must be some point in my life that I wanted to die because I certainly don't right now. So I started really going backwards with this mission in my head that I must have informed my cells, given them a message at some juncture in my life, right? So I went backward, 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 and I landed on this 10-year-old little girl version of myself who was being sexually molested by the vice principal of my elementary school. And I remember thinking like, oh yeah, ah, that she really wanted to die. You know, she had no language for this. She didn't understand what was going on. This part of me really did want to die. And the research is telling me that it takes anywhere from 10 to 30 years for an autoimmune disease to fully develop. This was actually basically 20 years later from that event. And I thought, it's like I have this little turkey timer in me. Ping, you're done, you know. And I thought this trauma has to have something to do with what's going on in my life right now. Even though I can't see it, I can't feel it, I can't quantify it, this has to have a relationship. So I started diving into the science and I learned in the process to digest my anger. I started going into trauma healing therapy and really learning how to do this, you know, and reframing a lot of what I had taken from my childhood to be true, right? These truths that these beliefs that we swallow when we're kids that bite us in adulthood. That's how I phrase it now. And I learned how to actually take those those truths that I had bitten and swallowed and digest them properly so that I could create new ones, right? And so this is really uh, something that, again, our culture doesn't give us a framework for understanding, for, like you said, articulating, verbalizing. And so this was a, a very, uh, like, 
clouds parted, angels sang <laughs> moment for me when I, when I saw this, you know. Oh, and then I was able to reverse my autoimmune disease within six months. Wow. I mean, that, you know, that's yeah. just powerful. Yeah. Yeah, I do know um, because I see so many patients who suffer with autoimmune disease. And you're absolutely right. The story that they're told is that this is irreversible. Get on the methotrexate, get on the immunologics, get on the next drug because. It is, it is not a question of if you will progress. It is just an, an absolute assumption that you will. And there isn't really any other way around it. And we and then in functional medicine, we say diet. Right. And we kind of, we kind of land in diet and we stay in diet, right? Well, and I and tell that my, is a part of it. Yeah. And I tell my patients. But, but it's not the full story. If you yeah. are, certainly diet is a part of it and, and reducing, you know, we get so many toxins and we, we add more and more perturbations and more and more assault basically to the body if we're eating crappy food. But the, what I tell my patients, and I don't know if you agree with this, but is that if you are limiting your foods further, then it means you're less resilient and less healthy. You should be resilient and be able to eat a variety of foods. And if you can't, that tells me that there's another why. There's another thing that is making your body not healthy, not resilient. And so we're not going in the right directions by further limiting you. And we're not getting to the why. And I, so when I was in school, I went to Bastyr um, up in Seattle, up near you. And I, Remember hearing in a counseling psychology class that one in four children is sexually assaulted or sexually abused. And I was just like, no, there's no way. Like, that cannot be true. Mm-hmm. And then I did further um, I, counseling work and, and started counseling students, other, other Bastyr students, and then um, outside of that as well. And sure enough, I was like, uh-huh, that's right. And that actually might be low. It might be closer to one in three. And I, mm-hmm. I still like it. It obviously is heartbreaking to think about that, um, and to think that these children, these you know, help, like not help. I don't want to say helpless children, but you know, these very vulnerable beings are being are going are suffering to that degree. And then it's also in the context of this society that refuses to discuss it, right? So there's no light shed on it. So there. The solutions are so limited because people like me go, no, 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 that can't be true. That statistic cannot be true. But I see it every day in my practice that the people who come in and suffer for years with autoimmune disease, with with hypertoxicity and multiple chemical sensitivities and anxiety and depression, there's usually a history. Nine out of 10 times, there's a history of trauma, of childhood trauma. And sexual trauma is certainly the the majority of that. And so here you are, I get to see you giving your talk on the TED stage, speaking exactly to this. And for me, it was one of those those moments that you described where I was like, of course, of course they have something to do with each other. So tell me, how did you reverse it? What did you do in those six months? Um, it, this is so courageous that you like you went towards it, this scary, horrifying thing that happened to you as a 10-year-old. Instead of running away from it, you went, you went towards it and dealt with it. Can you tell me about that process? Yes. You know, it's so interesting because I wrote a book called Solving the Autoimmune Puzzle. And in it, I, I give this ratio that I created in my head called the misery to motivation ratio. And, you know, I say that, unfortunately, this is human nature, right? The more miserable you are, the more motivated you are to actually make changes. Well, when you're handed a diagnosis where they say there's no cure <laughs> and you're not going to do anything except take meds that have horrific side effects, right? Right. 
my misery level was very high. So I was very motivated. That was also high. I have four small children that were used to a certain kind of mother. And I was not, you know, the way that I found out I had RA was that I was just flattened. I could hardly get out of bed. And it felt like it was all of a sudden, which is what all my patients say too. All of a sudden I'm sick, right? Which is completely inaccurate. So what I did was I found my why, which is what I always tell my patients to do. Find a reason why you're going to be motivated to make the changes you have to make. And then the second thing that I did was I started looking at what I now call the four corners of everybody's puzzle. So everybody with a chronic illness has the same, you know, we're all, we're all unique. We all are a puzzle. But when we think about solving a puzzle, there are these four corners. And I started looking at digestive health. Ayurvedic medicine really, really, you know, like most ancient forms of science, they all health and disease start in, in the digestive tract, right? So I started looking at that. I started looking at toxins because that was another one I was seeing in the literature, right? So I was looking at that. But I didn't limit it to toxins that we tend to think about like chemicals and pesticides and, you know, the all of the molds and, and bacteria and viruses. I also thought about the toxins I was creating in my own mind, like my toxic thoughts and beliefs, right? Mm -hmm. And then the third corner puzzle, corner piece of the puzzle for me um, is always genetics. And my grandfather had had RA. And this is why my rheumatologist said, well, I'm sorry, you basically drew the short end of the genetic lotto, right? And that was the case closed. And then that last one was stress and trauma. And so I started looking at all four of them and how they interrelate with each other. So I realized that every time that my biochemical soup is set off and I have a flame, right, a flare inflammation, it's because I have perceived something as being dangerous. And I realized that I had learned at a very young age to be in a state of fight or flight or freeze. Mine was actually more freeze, right? A 10-year-old kid being called to the vice, vice principal's office was instant freeze. So my nervous system had gotten into this patterning, and I realized that that habituated nervous system pattern had to be dealt with, and that I was really hypervigilant. And I always say now, like, a hypervigilant mind creates a hypervigilant immune system. My immune system is my defense system. So, of course, if I'm on the lookout for being hurt emotionally, then I'm going to have the same reactivity inside my body. Another thing I love about Ayurveda is it says we're the microcosm of the macrocosm of the universe. I really took that to heart and I started thinking about that. Like, okay, my cells, you know, have the same consciousness and intelligence that I do. So let's look at what my consciousness and intelligence is actually creating here. So if I'm looking for her, I'm going to find it. And then I'm going to have this defensive structure that happens inside my body that's wired that way, my immune system, right? So I started realizing these were connected. So really what I, you know, like, when I studied this, oh, cortisol that's released when I perceive myself as being in danger is breaking down my gut wall. It's affecting my genetic expression, right? And so then when the gut wall is broken down, then these lovely little bugs that are living inside of me, because I had Lyme and I had Epstein-Barr, and everyone always says nowadays, like, Epstein-Barr is the cause of everything, or Lyme is the cause of everything. Well, no. You know, you have to be a hospital environment for that to happen. And I realized I was creating apartment complexes for everything to come and live in with a big sign that said vacancy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so Come on in. You know, I was like, 
come on in. Let's set up shop and we can live together because I have this great acidic pathway happening. And so and it all starts between my ears. And so then I started realizing that, oh, everything starts with what my neuroception is, my, my perception about myself, and my perception of that self in the environment, in this universe, in this life. Me feeling betrayed by my body was actually setting up a whole new, you know, that's what autoimmune disease is. You're in a combative relationship with yourself. There's no winner in that. When I got that and I went, okay. Like, I don't need to be scurrying around searching for answers in the research literature or with any other kind of provider or practitioner. I need to sit down and I need to actually start peace talks between my heart, my mind, my body, and my spirit. And in, and we're not getting up until we have a truce, you know? <laughs> I really went into it this way. And so I started working at it from that. I mean, honestly, I think that the two most important English language words for this kind of healing, the first one is willingness to really go in. You say it's courageous. I say it was necessary. You know, and yes, it takes a lot of courage. I definitely don't want to discount that because, you know, people, we get our patterns and our motivations for behaving the way we do. We, we ingrain our personalities and our ego structures because they, we learned at a young age that this was the way we could feel protected and loved. And, but, but when you get to be an adult and you realize that, oh, that's not working, then it's just really being willing to take the time and the willingness to sit down and do this. And then the second word is integration. That once you get the insights, because you can go to so many different retreats, workshops, read books, go to a doctor's appointment, come back with insight. But if you don't practice it with the same diligence that a piano, you know, uh, maestro, you know, yeah. will practice you know, with these clunky chords when you first start out, sound terrible and it's horrible to try and get your fingers to move in that way. But once you sit and you practice, then you start to get really good and it sounds wonderful and pleasing, you know, and that's actually how you have to approach this. People want a one and done. It's the match the pill mm -hmm. to ill thing, you know, you know, that we have going on. So really when people ask me how I did it, it was, it was, um, uh, there's a way that I conceptualize will and will is, is, is your attention to your intention. Mm -hmm. And those two have to be equal. You can't lose sight of your intention and you have to actually keep your attention on it at all times. And then it, it happens, you know? You could think about these five keys to creating your reality. And the first one, the will is actually the third. The first one is awareness. That's your direct experience of your life. So you're experiencing life, right? And it's just your direct experience. And you could be 10 years old having sexual molestation. That's your direct experience of life. The second is your consciousness, which is actually the meaning you put to that experience. It's the shaping you do with your own imagination. Now, when you are only 10 years old, six years old, an infant, you don't have a prefrontal cortex that's built yet. You are in the, the child brain. And that brain actually doesn't have adult executive function. So you're going to be making up. You're also in a developmental state that's very self-centered. So the imagination that you use to shape and put meaning to your direct experience of reality is going to be with a child's brain, a child mind. And it will make sense to that child. It'll be self-centered and it will be based on survival because you're, you're, 
adjective of helpless children is actually pretty accurate. They are powerless, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're trying to figure out how to be humans in a world dominated by big humans, and they're trying to learn all of it, right? So it's like, how do I fit into this world? So those meanings that you create, your consciousness, you then carry forward into adulthood, and it's the gift of illness to actually make you sit down and reevaluate those with an adult brain. So then you get your will, right? The will is attention and intention. It's the musculature that you have to actually keep with this reshaping of reality. The fourth one is your intention. So you can keep going back to that, like, okay, what is my intention here? What do I want? Do I want health? Do I really want health? If I really want health, I'm not going to keep with this victimization, right, meaning that I have. I'm not going to keep looking for danger. I'm not going to keep setting off with my own imagination the biochemical soup that actually breaks down my gut walls, expresses my genetics in a way that I don't want them expressed, you know, and keeps my trauma alive. And then the last one, the fifth one, which is so interesting, you can actually master all four of the ones I just talked about. You can master them, and you have to if you're going to get better. You know, it's a skill set. But the last one is called the intent of the world. Now, this is a really interesting one because this is other people. It's, it's God. It's, it's, your, it's the world. It's the government. It's the experiences that Mother Nature provides. It's everything that you have no control of. In other words, it's everything. And intent, you cannot master because it's a mystery. So it's like this deep surrender mm-hmm. to what you cannot control. And it's, you know, that mystery is that ability to actually be without an attachment to an outcome. So can you do all of this without an expectation that your body is going to behave differently? I was able to do that. Like, okay. And then there's the mystery, right? And I give it all over because this may be what I'm supposed to have for the rest of my life and there's some lesson in it and okay. So not having an attachment to outcome, I believe actually helped it switch off faster than it would have if I had been saying, okay, I'm going to do this so that I don't have joint pain anymore. I'm going to do this so that my fingers will stop getting deformed. I'm going to do this, you know, so I'll have energy and I can get my body back. I always hear that from my patients. I want my body back. And so with the mystery part of it, that too is a skill to be mastered of being able to just surrender to the unknown and to know that all of it's being done for you and not to you. And that is really fascinating because if you understand it's being done for you, not to you, and that this is a catalyst for the expansion of your own consciousness, then you can just rest in it quietly, right, without sending all the fight or flight or freeze chemicals down to the body. Your body begins to understand it is safe. Your mind and your body begin to speak together. Your heart's involved as a big part of the team. And you understand that actually this body is just a vehicle to carry your spirit around and you're not going to spend every waking moment waxing your car Mm -hmm. and making sure there are no scratches on it, right? You're going to go, okay, I got to get on with my life purpose here, right? That's how I did it. And I wonder if that surrender piece allows you to open to all the potential that you didn't know existed, right? If you're attached to just not having joint pain, then there's a lot, there's all the stuff that you don't know that you don't know that's a potential that 
you kind of close yourself off from. Um, this is where it's really great to have your book in front of us, but can we just review those? So awareness, meaning banking, will, remind me of the fourth one before surrendering to the mystery. In, intention. Intention. And then surrendering to the mystery. That's beautiful. Intent. Intent. That's the intent of the world, right? Intent and everything in it that actually you cannot control how it's going to behave. So if I always say that people with autoimmune disease have three Ps, people pleasing, perfectionism, and poison from past pain that they're holding on to. And those three Ps, so if, if people pleasing is in place, then what you're going to do with your strategy, and this is me, please tell, I'm only saying this because this, I've done this, I <laughs> caregiving, Right taking care of everybody else. And that's part of what we learn when we're traumatized as children is, okay, I'll be a good little girl. I'll do, you know, I'll do this for you. If I do this, will you actually pay attention to me? Will you keep me safe? Right? So then when you're this over caregiver in adulthood, and then you find that people are not giving you what your desired outcome is, then there's going to be some bitterness and resentment that happens. And that resentment is actually, the, I think, the most powerful toxin that you can have in the four corner pieces over Epstein-Barr, over Lyme, over every other bacteria and virus we share this planet with, because it's a self-induced one. There's no antidote for that that you can get outside of you. Resentment has to be an inside cure. And so I always say, like, you have to take the bitterness bathtub and take the plug out of it and let the resentment drain out <laughs> bathing in it, That's right? <laughs> like, you can be drinking kale juices in the morning and taking detox baths at night. And if you're doing it with this bed of resentment, you know, that, that it's all going to, then it's just not going to work. It is not going to work. Let's take a quick break. We're going to announce a study being conducted that you might be interested in. North County Natural Medicine is conducting a research study on mild cognitive impairment. If your memory is not as good as it used to be and you're interested in trying to boost brain function with integrative medicine treatments, then listen up. To qualify, you must be 60 years of age or older, have at least a high school diploma or equivalent, be able to use email, be able to safely travel to North County Natural Medicine in Encinitas, California for clinical and study visits, be able to independently fill out a computer-administered questionnaire, and be able to wear a wristband for six months. If you are interested, then please call North County Natural Medicine at 760-385-8683. Benefits may include free integrative medicine assessment and treatment. The study is being conducted by the North County Natural Medicine Clinic in affiliation with HealthGot Research Institute at National University of Natural Medicine with funding from a private anonymous donor, IRB number RB7102019. The principal investigators are Heather Sanderson, ND, and Ryan Bradley, ND, MPH. Now, back to the show. Well, and we see this. You talked about Ayurveda as a 10,000-year-old medicine. Uh, it's more than that. But as this approach to health and, and how we interact with our bodies, one of the conserved sort of things that you see pop up all over the world in these ancient medicine sort of paradigms is forgiveness. So in Hawaii, it's called mm -hmm. Ho'oponopono. And in um, at 40 Years of Zen, or also the BioCybernaut place, it's actually also up by you in the Pacific Northwest, yes. what the, the idea is that what Zen masters get and the, the 
value that they get from sitting and meditating is that they get to forgiveness, right? So you see that over and over again in these systems. And is that sort of what you're referring to when you talk about this bitterness bath? Like that if we hang on to that anger and we can't forgive, then really we're hurting ourselves still. You know, it's interesting because forgiveness is such a loaded word. And, and I do talk a lot about this because my doctoral research was about it. What I was looking at was held on to hurt. You know, I was seeing it in my office day in and day out. I went to the medical literature. I couldn't find anything that matched what I was seeing in my practice. And so I went back to school and I got a PhD in sexology and people are like sexology. I didn't even know that was a thing. And I say, yes, it was because I was having all these people come in asking me for hormones saying they had low libido. But when, when I start inquiring what was going on, there was resentment in their relationships. And I was like, you know, hormones aren't going to fix this, right? This is the content of my Ted talk. Mm -hmm. And so when, when I started really examining this, um, I, I looked at and I created this hurt model for my research. And what I found is there's this initial hurt when you're a kid, everybody has it. You know, we started off the conversation with one in three to four, you know, people are, are abused when they're children, right? Um, sexual abuse being very high. And so people will automatically tune out of the conversation when they hear that. And they'll say, oh, you know, I haven't had trauma. But actually, I start the conversation by saying every single person has had trauma because you can think of, you know, when I started mapping brains for my research and looking at fMRI scans, I was looking at the impact that PTSD had on the brain. There's a shrinkage in your adult brain, you know, your, your executive function, the one that actually makes decisions about who you hang out with, how you spend your money what you're going to put on the end of your fork and in your cup, like all of that is adult function. And if that shrinks and your amygdala grows, that's the part that's like the fight, flight, looking for danger, freeze, right? If that is growing in volume and the adult part is shrinking, then we're in trouble. And so I started looking at that and going, oh, but then I found this researcher that was finding the same exact brain changes for people that were reporting themselves as being chronically overwhelmed and stressed, overscheduled, busy, you know, that they were actually having the I same brain I don't know anyone changes. like that. <laughs> I know every single <laughs> person, right? Yeah. And so I went, oh my gosh, you know, if you're actually perceiving yourself as overscheduled, overstressed and overburdened all the time, then you too have the same exact brain damage as someone with PTSD. So I want to like start with that as our premise because Mm -hmm. otherwise people really check out and tune out. Okay. Well, and you put yourself into camps of like, I was sexually molested and I wasn't. And so you're, now you have others, right? And we have comparison too, Mm -hmm. right? Which is also crazy because I started realizing as I was doing therapy with people that um, I just remember a woman being so traumatized because she was the third girl in a family and she always got hand-me-downs. And I remember she was reacting in the same way. She had this disease, this autoimmune disease, in the same way as someone that had been sexually abused. And I thought, oh, you actually can't compare because your highest level of trauma is your bar. And that is going to be the same as somebody that's watched their family get raped in a war-torn country and their house burned. And, you know, it's like, I know it sounds weird that that's the case, but actually that's your highest level if it's what it is, right? And so, and I can come back to that about why that is. But but when you think about us as as early humans sitting around the campfire, you know, in tribal days, if we were put outside the firelight circle 
then we knew our survival was threatened. The saber-toothed tiger could eat us. And so any experience of rejection is actually experienced as trauma. And who has not been rejected in childhood? You know, and so that's what I want to, I want to bring our conversation to that place where we are a collective instead of a group of separate entities of with comparables, you know, of trauma. You know, let's put us all in the same place of this is the human experience. This isn't bad and it's not good. It just is. And so when you start there and you think about like, okay, so in the hurt model, there's this initial hurt and it can be you actually messed up a spelling word in the spelling bee, you know, in front of a whole bunch of people in public shaming, right? It can be that and it can be anything else. And then, and then from that place, you're going to make up a meaning, right? So this is the place where we shape our imagination, right? So we're going to make up a meaning about it. And then we're going to actually create an adaptive behavior that goes with that meaning. And this is really interesting. So when you think about it, first you have your hurt, whatever it is, and then your nervous system responds because you get a feeling in your body that then we start with our nervous system response. That's actually going to get hardwired now. Now you have a habit if that keeps that button keeps getting pushed. And, and it's going to be the button of the meaning you create. So if we go back to me, and, and I always use myself as an example because it's easy to see it. I'm sitting in a fifth grade classroom. You know, I, I get called to the vice principal's office. The, the intercom goes off in the corner of the classroom to say the Pledge of Allegiance. And I go straight into the nervous system response because who knows after that thing starts to get crackly what's going to happen next, right? And so I... I keep doing this pattern, right? And the meaning that I created was that I have to actually be perfect to survive because the vice principal was telling me it was because I was a bad kid and, and stupid, you know? And so, uh, so my adaptive behavior was to become a perfectionist and to really be smart because, <laughs> you know, and so none of this stuff is bad. This is all like, this is the stuff that just occurs, Right. No emotional tie into it at all. This will be your meaning, your behavior. Now in adulthood, you're going to have something that calls you to re-examine these old belief patterns. And so on the hurt model, there's one branch that comes off that says maladaptive memory processing loop. That maladaptive is you stay in that same pattern. People come along, they push your button of not being good enough or whatever it is. And then you're going to go off into your nervous system, hijacking of every other system in your body, and then you're eventually going to have disease. That's the way it goes. And you're not going to have any libido as a sidebar because the zebra being chased by the lion knows it's not safe to stop and have sex right now, right? So there goes your libido. Now, on the other side of it, there's, there's a different way you can do things. This is the place where it takes some willingness. And this is a willingness to self-confront and create an adaptive memory processing loop. Now, from that place, you're going to look at it and you're going to say, gosh, this has happened many times in my life before. I'd like to get rid of it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this nervous system response that I have, I can tell it's making me sick, right? And so then you're going to go into uh, this, this ability to self-confront. Now, forgiveness. When I put this into my research and I did a review of literature on it, I saw that there were wildly different definitions of forgiveness. Mm -hmm. People get confabulate forgiveness and reconciliation all the time. Forgiveness is not reconciling. 
Okay. You can forgive somebody and I'm going to show you the process to do this. It's not easy. It is not lip service. It's not, Oh, I forgive you. You know, that just, you can't be sitting in a pew in church and be hear a sermon about forgiveness and just do it in your heart. And that's it. It's done. It's not a one and done thing. Reconciliation it only happens if it's a relationship that is important and has been demonstrated as safe. In other words, the person that hurt you, if they show contrition, they understand what they've done and have made steps towards that for towards uh, changing that, then you have an opportunity to reconcile if you desire it. Otherwise, you can forgive and have really great boundaries. Okay, and you don't have to have you don't have to forgive call the other person up. Like I didn't call my vice principal up and say, Hey, let's go get coffee. Right. I, I just understood. And I'm going to show you how I did it. Well, wait, but what did happen so, to him? Because he was probably doing this to other I little don't girls know. too. You don't. Okay. I know. I had to ask. Because it was 20 years later mm-hmm. that I started making these discoveries. Right? right. And at that point he wasn't in the school system anymore. So, you know, this is the unfortunate thing. And you know, as a child, I did try to tell people it was happening, but I didn't use the right words. And that's a really interesting thing to to listen to children because I didn't actually know the word sex at the age of 10. I was very, we, we were, I was raised with no TV and it was a different era. It was the 1970s. I know it sounds like peace, love, rock and roll, but we had just moved from Japan. I was a Navy brat, like didn't even know what sex was. So... <laughs> So it's just really fascinating. I didn't know the word molestation. I didn't know the word abuse, you know. And so I didn't know how to express what was happening. I tried to tell the teachers and they just, you know, like it was just not, I didn't have the right words. And plus, probably I, you know, I felt somewhat like it was my fault because I was being told it was. So I, I would only venture out from my little shell a little tiny bit to say something and then I'd retract as soon as I was shut down. Kids don't, they are powerless, you know. So when you go to forgiveness then, and I'll use him then since he's on the table as, as an example, um, I looked at him when I started learning how to properly forgive. And, and this is an exercise that takes a lot of courage. And I make it last in, when I'm working with people. I say, please do not jump to forgiveness yet because there's, there are a few steps. First, you have to do this reflection process and then this mirroring work. And the mirroring work is actually looking at the person that's hurt you in the mirror, seeing them as you, okay, a- a- another a form of you. And you list all of the ego traits or personality characteristics that are bothering you about them. So I'll use, like for him, I came up with um, cruel, egomaniacal, um, and, and without integrity, right? And so we'll just use those. So, so what I did was I said, okay, so how, how do I do those three things? Now I don't sexually abuse children, haven't. And so it's really hard because people will get hung up on the behavior. I'm talking about the ego. We all have the same personality characteristics, by the way. It's just that whichever ones we feed the most to grow the strongest and, and we'll do them differently. So we look different from each other, but we're all cruel we're all loving. We're all kind. We're all fearful. We're all like, but we do them in different variations. And so it makes us think we're all different. So when I started looking for cruel, I'm a mother of four children. Like that was so fast. I went, oh, <laughs> there have been, 
I mean, come on, I'm a parent. And so <laughs> but that was my next big question. It's like, has this influenced your parenting style? Oh, for sure. That's the whole point of this forgiveness process is it yeah. is then you get to see it in yourself and go, oh, I'm going to go ahead now and use this as the teacher, you know, mm-hmm. like he was a great teacher for me, bow to him and say, thank you for being my teacher. And now I'm going to watch for these things and how I do them in my own life, which is different than how he does them. And no, and not judging him now because I'm saying, oh, you've reflected this in myself, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I had guilt tripped my son when I first got this download on this and just that morning. So I went back to my oldest son and I said, hey, Cameron, did you experience this interaction we had this morning at breakfast as, as a guilt tripping? And he said, yeah. And I said, <laughs> okay, that is actually really out of line and out of integrity for me in the way that I, my values are for parenting. And I said, I'm going to ask your um, help with me really watching this. And I said, that's so dysfunctional. And if you notice it again, um, will you please point it out to me? And he said, sure, mom. And I said, okay. And I really and apologize for using that method. Point? How old is he at this point? Um, he's, he's about 10 years old. Okay. So 11 about the same yeah. age you were. Yes. Yes. And so he said, yeah, mom. And, and so we became accountability partners. Right. And I really watched it because I knew that I was using that because I had seen myself do it because I was looking for cruelty in myself. And then I used ego maniacal and I thought, oh yeah, my way or the highway, of course, like I'm a parent. And so <laughs> I really started creating this platform of having these democratic discussions around the table where I get last say, but everyone gets their voice heard. And, you know, like I really reestablished how we did things. And then, you know, like, so he became the, the most amazing teacher for me. And I was then able to see us on equal footing, not me up here with self-righteous indignation about how could you ever hurt a child, right? And and then I could bow to him and forgive him. Then I did not reconcile. That's what I want you to understand. Mm -hmm. So forgiveness is actually taking the resentment out of yourself. It's giving you not just that, but it's also giving you self-reflective ability that you cannot see for yourself. Like this superpower. You know, when someone hurts you. Yeah, exactly. When someone hurts you, they do something that makes you sit back on your heels. And if you take the opportunity and are willing to self-confront, you can find yourself in them. And then you can understand why it was so hurtful, right? So so that, again, doesn't mean that you're a doormat, right? It means you're willing to use everything in this life as a teacher. No, it's this incredible and invitation to go in the direction of growth, yes. personal growth. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Wow. Okay. So the hurt model, a lot of that starts in childhood. So you talked a little bit about how going through this personally affected how you parent. But do you think about your children's experience kind of generally, not not just with you, but with their dad within their school and their sports activities? Do you think about their entire experience differently with your new insights? Yes, but let me give you the the really obvious thing that happened for me that won't be obvious because <laughs> it's just so fascinating. I went and I did this 10-day Vipassana meditation retreat. And I, I came back 
you know, there was there were a series of things that happened where um, during the course of not speaking and and having just time with me, myself, and I, no cell phone, no journal, no yoga, no anything to distract me, right? No reading. You're not allowed to do any of this stuff. It was just me, myself, and I. And so I started having all these nightmares that each of my children was getting picked off. Like they were dying in the most horrific ways in my dreams at night. And I was just really agonized. So... <laughs> I tell this story on myself because it's really very illuminating when you go back to the egomaniacal thing with my vice principal. So I went to the front desk where they take your cell phone away from you, right? And and I said, I need to call my house. I need to call home. And she said, so, okay, why? And I said, I think something's wrong. I think something's wrong and going terribly bad. And she said, well, why do you think that? And I said, well, I mean... I mean, I'm kind of intuitive and I'm getting, <laughs> I'm getting, <laughs> this is the arrogance. And so I'm getting all these hits that something's wrong, you know? And she looked at me and she said, so did you leave the number here for, is there anybody watching your children? And I said, yeah, they're with their dad. And, and she said, is he safe? And I said, yeah, of course. And, and he, she said, and you left the number. And I said, yes. Well, do you think he'd call you if something was going on? And I, I stared at her and I, and I said, got it. And I walked off. <laughs> and then what I really understood is that this was all my attachments coming up. That actually I'd created this family that, that I was also using to keep my own emotional equilibrium and my happiness, you know, and I was creating this magic life for them. And, and really like just, I, I was a super mom and I, created magic everywhere for my kids. And I realized this wasn't for my kids, you know, and that I was attached to them in the most unhealthy way. And so I went and I sat down on my meditation cushion and then I let them all die. Every single thing, like my youngest was being eaten by a shark. I watched the whole thing and I let it happen. Uh, my son got swallowed up in a volcano. I let it happen. I watched his body disappear under the lava, you know, and like every single thing. It was awful. And then I just rested with that. And I started feeling like, oh, and then, and then other people that I knew and loved died in horrific ways. And so I was all alone. And I realized there's the root fear. Mm -hmm. All alone with nobody I know, nobody that loved me, that I loved, and I was all alone. Okay, existential angst right there. And so I saw it and I went, oh. And I said, so now I'm at the root, right? Here it is. And so I thought I have a choice. I can kill myself. And I think thought of all these different ways I could actually go out and meet them and, and leave this world that was so desolately empty without them. Or I could go heal and actually get this, reshape my identity as not mom, not wife, not friend, not caregiver, not you know, nurse practitioner, PhD, not all of the stuff, right? I let it all go. And so what I ultimately did in my imagination, I was shaping my reality here, right? Is I went and I spent six months with Thich Nhat Hanh in Plum Village in France in silence. Mm -hmm. And then came back out and decided to just be of service to the world. And I had so much peace. And so when I went back home, I told my kids about this. And I said, so things are going to change around here. <laughs> It is not my responsibility to make you happy. It was like this big epiphany. It is my responsibility to give you the tools to make yourself happy. 
to meet the challenges life is going to give you, and to be able to have resilience in the midst of it, in the face of it. And I and I just changed my parenting from that moment forward, and it was remarkable. I have these four grown children now. They're all in their 20s. The oldest is 30. And they're the most remarkable people, you know? And it's just it, like that was a pivotal moment in my parenting of, oh, I am not here to make you happy. And in fact, when I try to, I am debilitating you. Mm -hmm. And I'm doing it for my own self-serving purposes that I didn't even see. That is profound. That is really powerful. So like, can you give some examples of how that shifted instead of going to Disneyland? Were, like, were they mowing lawns? Like what, what happened? What was that like? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't start a gulag, no. So... <laughs> Instead, I, I, I remember I was in graduate school and I used to throw this party that was almost bigger than Christmas in our household. It was called Mad Mabel's. It was at Halloween. And it was this huge thing where I would I was an archetype of of like the the shadow queen and I would become Mad Mabel and we would have this mixed up dinner. It was a big deal. And and it took me probably two weeks to get ready for. Yeah. And all of the neighborhood kids would come over and they'd have this menu of like chopped out pirates' tongues and cockroaches, you know, like all this stuff, right, that they had to choose from. And then the, and I was like the shrieking, crazy person. And it was really fun. Well, I was in the middle of graduate school and it turns out the finals week was right at Halloween. And I said, I, we're not going to have Mad Mabel's this year, guys. I can't do it. Like I've realized I can't do both. And uh, they had a fit. They had a fit. And I remember getting very, very depressed and, and going to bed and just really kind of what I call it potato bug, wanting to roll up in this potato bug. And, and uh, then I thought to myself, gosh, they're acting like brats. Can't they see that, you know, I can't do everything? And then I realized, oh, you created these monsters. <laughs> You're the one that did this, right? And so I got up and I said, so we're not having Mad Mabel's and let me give you some tools for dealing with your disappointment. And so then, you know, so I was able to actually go through and give them these tools for dealing with disappointment. So things like that, it, it didn't, it wasn't like this all of a sudden, it was me realizing as I reacted to their reactions, oh, this is part of that old, that old paradigm, right? Right. And this here's is what we need to do. Kind of where you started the conversation too is in like actually putting it into practice every single day, right? So you can go to spend time right. with Thich Nhat Hanh or you can go to the Vipassana retreat and have these insights, but then putting them into practice is where the rubber meets the road, right? This is where it gets really challenging. Bingo. You have to get creative mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and sit with that that truth and it's uncomfortable, right? Your kids are upset. Right. Yeah. Right. And, you know, we live in a generation, um, it's interesting because, uh, there's a lot of research out there right now that, uh, tells us that we're in a culture of narcissism and that basically all of us are narcissists because we're sort of steeped in this tea bag, you know, of our, our culture. And, and it's getting worse, like narcissistic personality disorders on the rise as a diagnostic ICD-10, like our DSM-5, like here are the criteria. People are falling in these criteria more and more, gone to like 6% to 16%. And I was under to, the impression you know, that just, they had, were talking about like even taking it out of the DSM because it was so common that it isn't yes. abnormal anymore. Right, which is frightening. And so I'm watching those 
rates go up mm-hmm. and the also anxiety and depression and millennials and suicide attempts are going up and autoimmune disease is on the rise. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying, oh my gosh, we are in, we're in a predatory culture, a culture that actually creates people that are the autoimmune disease. We are the autoimmune disease in our culture now. We're we're predatory in the way that we are attacking the planet that serves us, that gives us life. And we're predatory against each other about trying to be the best in the, you know. And so I started looking at the research and there are reasons for this. There are like four root causes to this. And one of them is self-esteem curriculum in our elementary, middle school, and high schools <laughs> that our narcissism's gone up as that has been more and more implemented. And instead of self-esteem, we need self-compassion and we need to actually teach our children, you know, how to have compassion for others and self-compassion instead of self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And so the other three are the, um, the kind of obsessive stuff that we have around fame Um, Everyone wants to be a YouTube star apparently now coming out of school. Uh, And then uh, the third one is the easy credit that we had. Like everyone could live like the biggest and largest life that they Mm -hmm. could conceive of. And and that was a problem. And then uh, social media. So, uh, you know, all the selfie stuff, like all of this is creating this culture of narcissism, which is actually creating a lot of problem with these disease processes and uh, mood disorders. And so I'm really looking at now, like how, what's the answer to that? And I'm starting to talk about like the missing rites of passage, which is a whole nother podcast we can talk about, but I'm putting together a study right now to look at what if we put rites of passage back into our culture? You know, what would that do? Because that actually creates a council of elders that's seeing you through this next stage, Mm -hmm. you know, of where you are. And says, you know, like, here's how to think of the collective instead of just yourself. And so uh, think about that. Like, how how powerful. We just don't have it. And there are so many rites of passage throughout our lifespan. But then we also, I mean, I was sitting up on top of a mountain in Colorado with the Lakota doing a vision quest in the Lakota way of four days with no food and no water for the second time. But I was, I realized as I was sitting up there this time in June Oh, I had self-selected, this is when I started thinking about it, to be in a vision quest at my time of menopause, like I'm mm. now transitioning. And and I knew I needed to get get out and do this and get input from these other places to get me through this next stage. And I thought, oh, people, we really need this and we don't have it. And to me, it's the antidote for the narcissism. And I believe that a lot of our um, illnesses being on the rise are actually as a, re- are a direct correlative to this. And I'm going to see what I can do about making some correlation <laughs> scientific so that we can so that we can really look at it. I'm, I'm right now trying to conceptualize it and build the, the study and design it so that it's actually quantifiable. But it's it's pretty fascinating when you think about what's going around around our country right now is we have millennials that are conceiving of new models of being um, in the world in an economic way that's different, in, um, in, in a community way that's different. But none of them are really bringing rites of passage along. And we've actually, if we look at history, we can see 
you know, we can look at the Maoist revolution in China. We can look at the communism in, you know, that happened inside of um, Russia, right? And we can see that things got kind of bleak as everybody was getting into this sameness mm -hmm. because we removed ritual, we mm. removed color, we removed texture, you know, like the rites of passage got removed along with the, all the other stuff, right? And so how can we build that for a culture that doesn't have it? How can we place that? And that's that's what I'm looking at right now um, as really part of this this healing of trauma because our our culture is trauma. We're in it. Yeah, it's traumatic. You, <laughs> you know? can't avoid it. That's fascinating. You okay, can't. so yeah, you you've had a lot of roles: mother and nurse practitioner and researcher. So, is the bulk of the work you're doing now in research, or I know you have retreats that you offer? You write a significant amount. So, what is your current work other than that research project? All of those things. All of those I still things. have a clinical practice. <laughs> I see I see patients twice a day. Or not not twice a day. I'm sorry, twice a week. Uh, Mondays and Tuesdays. I see them remotely on Wednesdays from all over the world on Zoom. And then I um, I write and I teach. I have a, a health coach certification program where I'm teaching people to do what I do and look at this emotional piece and, you know, look at the entirety and, and help people to um, step through into hormone balance and GI balance through also fixing these early meanings and beliefs. And so I train people to do that. And then um, uh, I write and I'm now think I'm putting together this research project. So uh, you do it all. I love I love that. I mean, all my kids are gone now. They're they're away from, you know, they've flown the nest. And so uh, this is my time to devote myself to, you know, looking around and seeing what my grandchildren are going to be born into and right. trying to have a some role in fixing what I broke. And this is the thing. I, I also see a lot of my generation sitting around just complaining and complaining and complaining about millennials. And I, and I'm always saying, Hey, we did this. Yeah. So, you know, like we are the ones that went along with this whole, this is my princess. This is my, you know, this self-esteem stuff and didn't teach our children how to actually live with disappointment and and we're the ones that gave everybody the trophy no matter what and so now they can't handle it when challenges are <laughs> really hard you know and so we need to be part of the solution instead of just sitting around and having a bitch fest about it which is anyway sorry I probably shouldn't have said that no no I appreciate that <laughs> and I mean it's, it it kind of goes back to looking the vice principal in the face right it, it's it's owning a yes. piece that's yours and then yes. again it's that invitation to be part of the solution. It's it's an invitation for not only personal growth, I think, at this point, but applying it to society, applying it to, to certainly your family, but like your community and the collective. And um, and I think that's really beautiful. And I will use the word courageous. I think it's very courageous that you are doing this. Um, and I'm grateful that you're willing because we need, certainly we need people like you. Um, and also, you know, you have, I think I'll say this from my perspective as a younger, a younger doc and a newer mom. It's like, we need these models of, of how to move forward, right? Like we can all add what we have to add at the time that we approach these different phases of our life, these different transitions, but it's, it's so refreshing to see someone, you know, 20 years ahead of me that is so dedicated to this and, and has put it into practice. So thank you for what you are offering. Um, it's very inspiring for me. And 
speaking, not on behalf of my patients exactly, but just having your insights. I, I send a lot of people to your TED Talk um, because I, I think it does, it articulates this part of our society that we don't shine enough light on. And it sounds like that's what you're doing again uh, as we talk about millennials and, and this narcissism. Um, it's, it's really putting words to that and, um, and, and bringing solutions. So I, I just am so grateful for what for you are doing and offering. Well, I just want to say to to you and and your generation, it, I taught this interfaith youth uh, organization when my kids were in high school for a, a lot of years. And I was teaching them how to, from different spiritual traditions, engage in dialogue. And I was hoping like, then when they grew up, they wouldn't be so eager to drop bombs on each other, you know, and these, all these kids that were part of this were, are amazing adults. Like that's exactly what happened. They're really engaged in the world in these very, very um, innovative and, and and collaborative ways. So uh, what I used to say to adults when I was 30 and doing this with them, with these kids was, you know, don't not listen to this younger generation. They have something to teach us. But now that I'm 54 and I'm watching the younger generation kind of just like throw away the elders Mm-hmm. because the elders are busy running around getting Botox and and trying to look like they are 30, you know, I, which is very discouraging, obviously, to me. Um, I want to just say to, to your generation, please have patience and call, you know, people that are 50 and over to their position as elders to the council table because our, our society needs it. And what will happen is nature abhors a vacuum and you can see what gets into um, government and power is going to be what's left over. If you do not stand and call the elders to the table, because they, I think, need to be yelled at right now, you know, of, listen, we need you. Instead of, I'm just going to ignore that generation, they really stirred up and they've left us this this fucked up world and we don't want anything to do with them. And we're going to go over here and start a new game, you know, and all these silos are popping up Mm -hmm. and that's just not going to work. And so, you know, what I want to say is thank you for your gratitude and you know, like stand together and call the elders to the table because they do have a lot to teach. But I, I think a lot of millennials are turning their backs from them, us, because w- there is a lot of like dysfunctional behavior going on around trying to look like they're still 30. So, you know, <laughs> let's create a space where it's okay to be an elder, you know, and, and actually it's welcomed and needed. And so that's another thing I've been trying to get my generation to be like, okay, put down the needle and the injections and let's actually go over here and start like <laughs> collaborating on what it looks like to be elders because um, all we have to do is look at our government and we can see what's put in place if we don't show up. Right. And so, and we can't complain about it. You cannot complain about it because this is just a default of you not showing up. So that's, Yeah. I work a lot with Alzheimer's patients, and that's a big part of my why, is that we have people who are at the height of their wisdom and experience who are taken out of society. And if we can come up with solutions to that, they also take a caregiver with them quite often. And so you have, and that's typically a partner um, or someone else of their generation, and they essentially leave their communities. You know, they become a drain. They become more, more of a liability than an asset. And 
Mm. I really believe that the world could be a completely different place if there were even, if just even some of those people that have Alzheimer's diagnoses could turn around because they have so much to contribute. It's so true. And I appreciate all you're doing for that because it's just, you're absolutely right. It's a brain drain and an age that is really needed to show up and be present. And, you know, it's frightening to watch your brain just drain away like that. So, oh my gosh, absolutely. Thank terrifying. you for what you're doing. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. It's so fun to, to learn about people. I just absolutely love what I do here because I get to hear the stories of other people that are doing it. And it's, it's inspiring, it's hopeful, and, um, and just really, truly impressive. So thank you for what you're up to. Thank you for sharing your time with us today. And um, please keep us posted on the new study. Thank you. I will probably be asking for funding at some point when I get it all together. All right. I figured if I'm doing this for the culture, the culture can contribute, right? Without a <laughs> doubt. Yep, the reciprocity. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Thank you for being with us for this conversation with Dr. Keisha Ewers. If you have questions about this content, then please leave them on our site at neurohacker.com slash podcast, and we'll work to get those answered on a future episode. If you liked this episode, then please go leave us a five-star review on iTunes and share it with all of your friends. If you'd like to become a co-owner of Neurohacker, then go to wefunder.com slash neurohacker. And make sure to subscribe to Collective Insights wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. See you next time.